Hi, welcome to the 100th episode of Better Red Than Dead. We were one of the 20% of the podcast that made it beyond three episodes. Um, <laughs> yeah, they don't work usually. It's the 100th episode of Better Red Than Dead. It's a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we're doing it. We're talking about Middlemarch, which is George Eliot's ma- massive <laughs> novel. I dropped it and it knocked over my water bottle and then I had water everywhere. And I was like, I blame Samuel Richardson. <laughs> <laughs> you know why it's called you know why it's called Middlemarch? Because if you start it in the middle of March, you end it in the middle of March. <laughs> yeah, it's a year, year, year long yeah. project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That would work. Yeah. Somehow I haven't even gotten through this intro. Anyway, it's George Eliot's massive novel, published in eight volumes in 1871 and 1872 and it is about all things everything (laughs) and among them is epistemology and modernity and class and gender and bourgeoisification and history and pretty much everything else that victorian britain has on offer yep (laughs) Um, but first in order so it's our 100th episode we're very proud of ourselves and we thought we wanted to like share a little of our favorite behind-the-scenes moments from the last three years. Yep. <laughs> um, so, guys, what was what, what did we do that was funny? Uh, well, first of all, yay us and yeah, yeah, you guys. Um, no, I, I uh, yes, I, I, I love, I love you both very much. Uh, I love the show, and yeah, it's no. I mean, this is you know, we say we've said this a lot. We say this anytime someone's like, oh, let's put it on a podcast. Like, it is one hundred percent the most rewarding academic adjacent thing I have ever done, and um, and At this that's point, I tell people don't go to grad school to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 or yeah. do both. No, do, do both. Okay, sorry, we all did both. I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, but Megan, you, I mean, you all say it's, it's like, yeah, it's like the, it's the best parts of grad school without all of the bullshit. So, um, so yeah. (laughs) Also, if everybody shows up being like, I think you're nice and cool and smart and not like, I'm here to fight you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. No, we're just, we're just here to fight literary fail sons and, uh, and, 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 and horrible reactionary trash. Um, cops. Yeah, 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 exactly, and you know, a cab. Uh, <laughs> but it's so, all true. so I, I, I a couple, just a couple things I'll mention, like behind the scenes, how the sausage gets made. A classic one from I got early on. Maybe this was our second season. Is uh, we did an episode on Fanny Hill because Megan's sister asked us to do that. <laughs> And we recorded it, and it was great. And something we lost one of the tracks. I forget which one. Just and so we had to record an entire second round of us talking about 18th century porn in, um, you know, funny, but also like trying to be smart about it. Uh, so that was cool. And, and like it, 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 what what you guys heard, uh, our listeners, was you know was was the you know obviously the the second attempt, and, and it's good. But I I do know that somewhere in our our lost archives are some <laughs> are some like killer dick jokes that never <laughs> saw oh, the light man. of day. The perfect object, the yes. platonic ideal of the dick joke is stuck <laughs> in Ben Caster's 
guts. Yes. And then the second thing I'll mention, so we, you know, we, we make no money from this. Uh, we do it all ourselves. And we're all self-taught at how to do a podcast. So like editing and stuff is something we had to learn how to do. Um, and, and we've had a lot of adventures with sound and we, yes, we, we're still working on it. So, you know, don't write in about that, but, uh, there's a couple things we learned. So one thing, uh, Zencaster, which is the recording platform we use, uh, this is another sort of, uh, better than dead uh, tidbit. Um, we're never in the same room when we record, like Katie isn't even at the nope. same time zone. <laughs> So, yeah, like, <laughs> we were Tristan. You and I were in the same room for about three episodes at yes. the very beginning. Yes, yeah, and and we are in the same city and see each other pretty frequently, yeah. but just not. Uh, you know, we, we record from the uh, the you know the, the the laziness of our of our own homes. So, but anyway, so like so we you know we use an online uh, platform to do it called Zencaster, and it appears to be sexist in that there are many times when Megan and Katie are laughing and it just drops their, it zeros out their sound. Um, and it does not do that to me. <laughs> okay. It does not approve of our cackling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like an animal or toddler has gotten into the wiring and is making squeaky noises and it's got to yes. be turned down. Yeah, so so te- so tech bro uh, programmers being being sexist uh, is 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 one thing, and then uh, so another fun th- tidbit. Uh, there's this thing that can happen called audio drift, which is basically when the tracks sort of like they're not they're they're not quite synchronized, and so we didn't initially know how to fix that. So I know there is one episode where it sounds like I am constantly talking over Katie and anticipating what she's saying. And that's not what happened. <laughs> like what happened is we just didn't know how to, to resync the tracks. Um, now we do. Um, but anyway, so th- those, those are some fun sausage making uh, <laughs> moments from, from my end. We love, we love to make this, we love to make that sausage. We yeah. just, we love it <laughs> yeah. so very much. And now it seems like as good a time as any to admit that, I'm really sorry. I'm the one that deleted the Fanny Hill episode. I wanted to talk about 18th century porn twice. And other porny novels. (laughs) I just thought that now would be the time to tell you. Yeah. I just remembered when we recorded our, we recorded this, I don't know if this is anything, but we we recorded our first episode, or no, our second episode. Uh, It was Dracula. I had spent the entire day and night before barfing, just barfing and barfing and barfing. And the whole day at work, I'm like dying. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm like, my head is, I I just, I feel like I'm hot, I'm cold. At one point, I like just sit down on the floor of the open office. It's like, I crawl, I crawl into the only private space available, which has a bust of one of the Kennedys, and just lay my head down near it, hoping to die. God, I hope it's Teddy. That's the funniest version of that story. Just I don't know why in my mind. I think my recollect, and this is a few years ago now, but was like you were like, oh yeah, I'm not feeling that great, guys. You didn't tell us like how bad it was. No, (laughs) you underplayed it for sure. Yeah, I I did I did underplay that. There were a lot of hijinks when we first started. I would record at work, which um, now is safe to admit because I don't work there anymore. Yeah, I don't Um, work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no work for me. No, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, um, and uh, the, I think Tristan, the time I, I 
think this was – I can't remember what episode it was, but um, we just fully recorded an entire seg- segment without having pressed the record button. Yes. Oops. Yes, that was me. right. Um, that might have been what we did Silas Barter, actually. And fortunately, right. oh. we realized what had happened while we were still like in the session. And so we could just go back and like say some shit we had done. But yeah, that's that, that was bad. <laughs> but, that was bad. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for letting me press the button, guys. It's really fun. I mean, I think like I am so sympathetic to vomiting every day because that was like (laughs) pregnancy for me. And I think I have a smaller apartment than Tristan's or maybe it's that it's put together differently. So the room that I record in is off of our living room, which means that my aged dog who's here. Or my two-year-old are always like barging at the door or trying to make noise, uh, and I heard this on. I could you can hear it, especially recently that she's like very loud on the various episodes, and you've never. I don't think ever heard Tristan's kid. Like there's some. You're never more aware of how different a given three two and a half or three-year-old can yeah. be than if you listen to this show well and it's funny too because i definitely hear my my kids sometimes while we're recording i'm like oh i, I hope i can uh, like get this uh, out of the track but for whatever reason it just doesn't again zencaster being sexist it's doing me a solid <laughs> it's like oh don't worry we'll we'll take care of that for you <laughs> like, oh, he's women with all their dad. kids and dogs running around yeah <laughs> So Yo, man, you, it's so nice that you do anything, bro. It's so nice that you do anything. It's so nice that you even edit like you, your kid out. It's like, That's so it's like you, you, nice. You, you you let your kid live at your house. That's awesome, dude. Dude, dude, rock. <laughs> it's just a reminder to me of my persistent neglect that you can hear the plaintive wail of my two and a half year old calling for me, yeah. and not just because she's being a poop who needs like another pack of fruit snacks (laughs) hey that's a good reason to scream Uh, it's true so if you hear like mama that's it's mine sometimes it's me sometimes Sometimes yeah it could be me too honestly but so hearing from chicago's third favorite commie mom sorry you have to listen to my kid (laughs) it's we're like so delighted to do this show we've had such a big boost in listeners in the last six months that it's just it's an enormous pleasure yeah no it has and uh, yes and, and we we, uh, we we love our listeners uh too very, very much and uh and really enjoy hearing from you guys and you know to like i've had tons of great conversations on twitter and an email with uh, people who've listened to the show and you know have have thoughts and uh and yeah i mean you know if you if you want to talk if you want to join any of these conversations please you know write us we're we're absolutely we're and, shall, and you know, uh, re, you know, Rex and uh, we we've done several episodes that are are, are listener requests. So, oh mm-hmm. yeah, and we're doing yeah, we're doing one this season too. Yep, yeah, we are. That's right, Samuel Delaney. So shoot us an email, and we will put it under consideration. We'll put it that way. Yep. And okay, so we're gonna do we're gonna do a little celebration. So we're bringing back our stickers and buttons promotion. So if you are a fan and post a review on apple or any of the platforms that allow you to review (laughs) you could do it on twitter i guess instagram yeah definitely do it on instagram yeah or at least you can post something point being if you say something nice about us on the interwebs and send (laughs) us a screenshot of your review to betterredpodcast at gmail.com and it's spelled r-e-a-d 
because it's still a pun after three years. <laughs> and just send us your street address and we'll send it to you. We have two buttons and two stickers and they're very cute. Yes. And I love wearing my book jerk button. Yeah. Aww. Yeah, it's, it's that, that's a great one. It really is. So on to the topic at hand. Why did we want to read Middlemarch? So uh, this this was my this is my two parter. Yeah, like so. One thing I I love about this podcast is sharing amazing 18th century novels that I love with you guys and with our listeners. And another, I tell is, people about the Wild Irish Girl like mm, once a day. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and, and uh, you or know, Caleb well, Williams. Yeah. Okay. Well, Caleb. Yes, Caleb Williams, a hundred percent. Castle of Toronto. Anyone? <laughs> Yeah, right. Or the bad, the bad feeling. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of stuff uh, that that I, I like to uh, evangelize. Like, hey, come read this deeply weird period. Uh, it's, yeah. it's great. Another thing I love though is making myself read stuff that I really, really should have already. And Middlemarch has been on my to read list for literally decades. <laughs> um, I'm not a Victorianist, so this isn't as embarrassing as if I hadn't read, say, All Flanders, uh, which I absolutely have, and we'll do on the show sometime. But still, like, I'm a novel guy, and this is widely, and and I can say having read it now very rightly regarded as as one of the pinnacle achievements of the realist novel in in Britain and in English. And and I'm really enjoying it. I think in large part, <laughs> uh, weirdly, because it reads to me like an 18th century rather than a 19th century novel. Uh, for one thing, lots of my 18th and early 19th century stand objects get shout outs, uh, Smollett, Fielding, Shelley. Elliot, I have learned, was also a huge Walter Scott fan, which is fucking based. Um, I feel like I can tell. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. Right. Because I think it, that shows in the novel's fascinating and nuanced account of what history is. I mean, it, it definitely it feels like she took Scott and then like made it even smarter. And in, in comparing to her and less romancy, too, but we'll, we'll talk more about that. But in comparing herself to Fielding, Elliot's narrator, um, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, but um, the narrator makes this claim that one reason her novel is different than, say, Tom Jones is, quote, Fielding lived when the days were long, for time like money is measured by our needs, when summer afternoons were spacious and the clock ticked slowly in the winter evenings. And and she does interesting things with this idea of time and society speeding up, uh, and, and it, it feels very kind of present to industrial modernity. You're getting toward Karl Marx, my girl. You're yeah. Getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it is. It, it, it definitely sort of, it, it is thinking with some things that Marx was also thinking about at this very moment. But Middlemarch is also super invested in epistemology and ways of knowing and how hard modernity is making that um, in, in ways that the great 18th century novels are as well. So like when Megan summarized what Metal March is, a novel about like basically everything, it strikes me that we said the same thing about my last two-parter, Tristram Shandy, um, great, greatest novel in English, according to me. Uh, and, and, and I really feel like there is a lot of overlap between Stern and Elliot. So like Stern, Elliot is trying to get at this deeply philosophical account of how we know the world, while also being very skeptical as, as to various answers uh, to that problem. For Stern, that always lands at a dick joke, ultimately. <laughs> but, but I'm I'm finding Middlemarch very funny too. Um, so it's great. I'm amped, and yeah, I'm 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 super excited. I just have to remind us all of one of. I mean, Stern. That book has, I don't know, f- ten of my favorite jokes in literary history. But one of them is that like, twelve pages in Latin. That is entirely so Stern can slip the word vagina yeah. into the text. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Which is just 
so it's so incredible it's just like it's like the alas poor yorick joke where we're all like okay we know it's coming you gotta wait 80 pages for the punchline though yeah 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 yeah. that's commitment to the bit yeah he's so good i just like i love the idea that just a country person came out of nowhere at the age of 40 and was like i'm gonna write this banger that is going to change literary history yeah yeah no it it is yeah um yeah and again i mean it's like the stern elliot comparison i feel like oh that's weird but i no i mean i'm i don't know like i the more i've thought about it the more i'm like these novels are trying to do a lot of the same things in 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 different in different modes um but but also yeah like elliot doesn't do the constant dick jokes but again there's a lot of very funny and cutting shit in this novel so. i think the characters describe casabon in a way in different ways that are so funny yeah. like yeah yeah will ladislav especially has these moments of describing him that are just like god they're so good yeah they really are the genuine character of a ruminant is my favorite because <laughs> yeah, yes. i think of it as being both like a cow and also like someone who ruminates yeah, yeah for sure okay so i wanted to read this for what i consider both the best and the worst reason for wanting to read anything which is that i wanted to be able to say that i had read it yeah. incredibly mm-hmm. <laughs> so like when I was in grad school and reading for my comps, and I had a little group of people who were in my writing group, we also helped each other prep for our exams. Shout out to Female Trouble, our <laughs> writing group. And my friend Margaret uh, suggested, she was like, we really need to have merit badges made for the books that once you finish it, you're like, man, I'm a hero <laughs> for getting through that whole book. Yeah. And her idea, which is my favorite of all the merit badges we thought of, was for Uncle Tom's cabin, and it's she just wants like Eliza clinging to the ice flow that she's clinging to when she crosses the river, which I I think is just like the perfect image. Yeah. And this, so this is like a side note, but I was just sort of dicking around on the internet and for Uncle Tom's cabin material, <laughs> I like, like you do fine. <laughs> yeah, and I get it. There's a Cliff's Notes of it, and the Cliff's Notes says that the scene where Eliza jumps onto the ice floe is, quote, probably the most famous scene in American literature. <laughs> and that's a very cute thought that yeah. that anyone would think that. Because all, ca- all I can think is that this person finished their comprehensive exams for a grad school and then just stayed in their apartment for the rest of their life. Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. You Around know? here, it's yeah. the most famous. Yeah. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, in these very limited, in my apartment, it's the most famous scene in American literature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I have not read Moby Dick, which is would be an astonishing thing to think. Right, right. <laughs> I yeah. don't know the great Gatsby. Why would you have champagne flowing in this what? enormous house? Yeah. I've heard I've read nothing. I've only read Uncle Tom's Cabin and that's not even the most famous scene in that novel. No. No. I know. Yeah, that's that's weird. <laughs> I also hope that person got paid six figures for writing that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I love them. I also drew up a Moby Dick badge that just has like a, an upside down whale with the, the crossed out eyes above a, a boat, like the best version of a boat I can draw. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tugboat. Yeah. Oh. Um, so none of this is about Middlemarch, but that's okay. We'll talk about it. And the real take home is that any 
one out there who's hoping to launch a merit badges for dorks business. We have a lot of ideas for merit badges for 500 plus page books. And we would like sashes made. Yeah. We would really put in a lot of energy to have our designer draw up a Pamela badge and a Shamala badge and a Joseph Andrews badge. And they all are they all fit together in a Venn diagram. We'll do Invisible Man next season, so you get one for that. I need a I need a fucking merit badge for having both read and taught Pamela and I, oh. Clarissa and and Clarissa yeah well oh yeah Clarissa the, the the big one uh, I was thinking what a Pamela merit badge would be and it would be like it would be like what part Benny Hill but then like good but then like <laughs> yeah. good housekeeping for the last three hundred pages where it's just like and now that the marriage has happened how does Pamela do domestic economy <laughs> <laughs> that but it is fun to try and figure it out and because. Because when you read for your exams, you're so like brain addled. Yeah. It's oh, I'm gonna devote my mind to this a corner of my mind to this fun thing that I imagined doing. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have an idea for an Etsy shop and you wanna sell Uncle Tom's cabin merit badges to four people. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're your yeah. dark target audience, yeah. We're your tar- yeah. We've read it. Anyone in grad school is like, yeah. hell yeah. Yeah. I need a sash. Anyway. <laughs> I I think you both are the wonderful people and I love you and I'm so glad that we are still doing this and yes our listeners we do chat and hang out all the time and genuinely like each other very much this is not Siskel and Ebert it's for real yeah okay maybe maybe that's what we should uh, for, we should uh, change our intro music to the Siskel and Ebert <laughs> <laughs> but not yeah, we're yeah. not. Like that. We're not. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Play it backwards. Yeah. Opposite. It's not a John and a Paul situation here. We no. always get along. No. I'm Ringo. <laughs> oh uh, no, Katie! I really think of myself <laughs> as George anyway, so that's fine. <laughs> First, let me start by saying happy hundredth birthday, everyone. Hey. We look so good. We look so good. I'm looking at you two right now. You look amazing. You cannot tell that you've been alive for a full century. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're geriatric for the podcast industry. Yes. Yeah. I'm really starting to show my years, but um, you two look look beautiful. <laughs> I am currently for real wearing a Jimmy Buffett t-shirt that's probably 100 years old. Hell yeah. Um, so I was excited to read this. I didn't know anything about it before. As I went into it like a blank slate, a Lockean blank slate, and quickly found that it was full of cranks and horsies and guys <laughs> whose main positive and negative quality is looking like John Locke and eating soup like my papap did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you'll find all that and more in Middle March. I just also side note here soup to my papap was anything floating in a liquid. So he had um, he had a certain uh, breakfast soup that was the oldest, soggiest cereal with donut in it, a little coffee, and then maybe like some ham ham sandwich that he brought from home. Yeah, you know, that's a two and a half year old's meal. Well, um, yes, and uh, 
uh, he and he brought that meal in um, a car with no seat belts in the '90s, <laughs> all the way from Altoona, Pennsylvania, to New Jersey. <laughs> not not refrigerated. <laughs> I just I just learned via uh, John Fetterman's Twitter account that there isn't something called Altoona style pizza, which mm-hmm. oh, that is dark. It's it's like slices of American cheese just melted. Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, and not not you, no one went to the deli and got the American cheese. If it it comes. <laughs> out of a plastic wrapper <laughs> it is mass produced like you have to That's peel all- every single slice yeah there's somebody has carpal tunnel for making that tuna pizza. <laughs> um, but that but that's all tuna pride nobody does anything as gross as anything that happens in Altoona in this book um that oh, i must i read oh. you the poem that george Eliot puts at the front of one of the chapters <laughs> in which she talks about like goopy sauces and she's yeah. like oh yeah Don't that's walk right up oh, to man. men who are full of goopy sauces yeah. and i was like marianne really yeah <laughs> I love a man who's full of nacho cheese. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm looking for a man who's cooler ranch. I don't, <laughs> not a, anyway. <laughs> Fuck. Okay. A podcast. We're doing a podcast. We've done this 100 times. Yeah. <laughs> More. Actually. <laughs> yes. Oh, <that's> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we had dummy episodes. If we can ever find those. Oh, yeah. yeah. I still have some of them yeah we, we did too yeah again this is behind the this is behind the yeah. music yeah. better than dead where no one gets drunk or dies or pees on a bed <laughs> or gets married accidentally um no. it's pretty it's pretty boring yeah. <laughs> so again i can't wait to i can't wait to circle back here after having read i did read 400 pages over 400 pages uh, if any, I I hear rounds of applause on the on the wind, um, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, got to read another four hundred pages. Uh, yep. <sighs> not not to not to brag or be sad. Um, <laughs> just excited. No, and so I I feel I feel like ill equipped to to totally judge, but I'm pretty sure that this book is the shit. I loved it. Yeah, as as Megan and Tristan both mentioned, it is sort of about everything and um as trist talked a little bit about uh one of the things it's about including everything is history and how a lot of the comedy comes from how history gets treated Mm -hmm. so like some characters think that they're gonna be you know like maybe some kind of like type of saintly person that's so good at being a wife that they like that some little girl dresses up like her for halloween one day but that is not what winds up happening it's like oh shit no one's gonna remember you the novel also does cool stuff with putting anticipation and reflection together. So who among us hasn't been amped for something that wound up turning out awfully, but in this, (laughs) it's a little, it's a little more than that. I think the effect is something like when you get the personal history of the character, it does feel like it's unfolding in real time. Like you get their revelations in a different way, which I think is very cool. Mm -hmm. And there are also all these historical models that sometimes they're comic, like the, like the lock thing kind of, other times they're there to not so that someone can not live up to them, mm-hmm. which is also you yeah. know a bummer. Fail but sons funny. who bankrupt their friends. Yep, yep, yeah. Oh yeah, there is yeah there is some epic fail sonry in this novel. So so much of it, so many horse related shenanigans. Oh, well, yeah. notable horse related yeah. shenanigans. Yeah, yeah. No, and and what I I also like that there's this. I, I'm sure we'll get into this tension between history, which is 
contingent and character or personality, which is like supposed to unfold, but actually seems to be to produce these incredibly predictable outcomes. Like, oh, the guy that sucks, the thing he's doing sucks. <laughs> yeah. Who, yeah. Who could have seen this one coming? Yeah. Um, a guy who seems like a bloviating old yob, not fun to be married to. Yeah. Who would have guessed? Weird. Weird. Anyway, I just want to wrap this up. In conclusion, in conclusion, I also love you guys and um, love doing this podcast so much that um, it made me go back for round round two of graduate school. And that is really saying something. <laughs> You're really blaming us for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And hey. (laughs) We've made a huge mistake. (laughs) You get to wear the stupidest thing I've ever worn in my entire adult life to graduate (laughs) from the University for Destabilizing Latin America. And now we get to wear that every year when we when we graduate our students. (laughs) Hey. A funny hat. I look like a nincompoop. You look. I mean, you, you look like you're participating in a, in a medieval heresy trial. Is what we look like. You know? <laughs> I know, but at that, you way. know, if you bring that up, I'm just going to be like, there's like a, there's like a Jew. Yeah, right. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you in you, it, you snuck in. It's like a Cadbury egg. The filling yeah. is different. Mm. The filling is not what you think. So, thank goodness we have two episodes because we have at least a season's worth of material but yeah. today we're talking about gender and the form of the novel both in a general and in a specific sense and about epistemology so uh tristan tell us what happens i will try so so trying to write this up was daunting because there are so many goddamn threads and what some i'm gonna much more interesting than other is some yes yeah, some much more interesting than though actually i mean have, having finished i could say they they all it, it it all comes together in a way that that, that really works um but so what i'm going to do is condense those threads to a few main ones that i'll, I'll kind of take in turn and i have to note the novel doesn't take them in turn really uh, something we'll talk about is the sort of massive web of social contingencies that elliot builds where what's happening in one narrative suddenly has relevance for another in often unexpected ways that's a really important and much remarked upon effect of the novel and and i'll kind of note the major places those overlaps occur but for the most part i'm going to tell you what happens with one of the major character uh, or character pairings and then move on to it, the, the, another I'll also say there are many different lenses you can use to think about this novel. So politics, history, gender, science, philosophy, to name just a few. My context discussion next week will try to help us consider Middlemarch as a historical novel. Um, really interested in the specificity of its temporal setting in the early 1830s and and the run up to the 1832 Reform Act, uh, which substantially expanded the franchise in, in the United Kingdom. But this week, I'm going to focus more on Middlemarch as a deeply philosophical novel that is really concerned with how one might find or can't find stable meaning in a world that's increasingly characterized by industrial modernity. And all of the major characters face this problem directly. So Dorothea Brooke, who might sort of be the protagonist of the novel, if we had to pick just one, she really wants her life to have, quote, purpose. She's bedeviled in that by the limited opportunities available to women in 19th century England. 
And she kind of moves between like religious faith or then investing herself in civil, uh, quote, improvement projects, God, like de- designing. So annoying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, it is for sure. Yeah. Like, it is like, what if we give every homeless person a tiny house? Yeah, I mean, she's there's a there's it a is very, liberalism, isn't it? Yeah, they, I mean, yeah, there there is a definitive Lisa Simpson vibe to Dorothy. Like, I mean, she is. Yeah, I mean, so she yeah, so religious faith and uh, yeah, like yeah, I'm going to design these better cottages for peasant farmers and yeah, like. It is kind of peak liberalism or like giving to the local hospitals or, or just other kind of people that need need her money, um, trying and failing to join her awful husband in his scholarship. So that's one character, but, you know, very central. Then we also have Tertius Lydgate, who is a young doctor that has just moved to Middlemarch to work at a newly established fever hospital. Wait, can I mention why he's done this? Yes, because he has to get out of London because his girlfriend, he learns that his girlfriend has stabbed her husband. Oh, <laughs> Paris. L-M-F-A-O. Paris. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Paris. Yeah. Damn, I didn't remember that detail in the 400 pages. <laughs> um, and he's like, oh, it's just so tragic that she accidentally stabbed her husband. And she goes like, oh, yeah. no, no I did it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that. It's amazing. Oh, shit. Um, okay, I'm sorry. No, and, and the Paris thing is interesting because basically he goes to Paris because he's like, he's like, the the English universities are are too stupid and not not modern enough. I need to go learn how medicine's done by people who who know what's what. So anyway, yeah, but um, yeah. Because so, what's your hours? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. That's and, what Mutter yeah. did. He was like, I'm going to go to Europe and doctor it up. Yeah. Yeah. I learn where all this goop inside of us is. Yes. Um, and also fall in love with a murderer. Uh, but yeah, so he's, uh, but right. So, so yeah, so he's there to work at this newly established fever hospital. Um, and, and Lydgate is convinced that medicine is the highest intellectual activity. So we're told he thinks of medicine as quote, the most perfect interchange between science and art offering the most direct alliance between intellectual conquest and the social good. Email us socialist doctors. <laughs> Do you sound as normal as this guy? Yeah, he, yeah. I mean, again, there's there is also a Lisa Simpson ass quality to Tertius sure. Lydgate. Um, so anyway, so Lydgate has come to Middlemarch, which, like the name suggests, is supposed to be this prototypically provincial place, uh, middle of the country in the Midlands, which is where LA was from. Nothing extraordinary about it in any way. A rural town, but also an industrializing one. So I and in that we have like March, also signified like the March of Time, like kind of you know time. time moving on so Lydgate comes here sort of to use Middlemarch as a laboratory um, he, he wants to look into the various causes of fever and you know things like cholera typhoid develop new treatment methods he's really into this idea of finding the quote primitive tissue that underlies all biological life uh, which really has Dr. Frankenstein <laughs> kind of feel to it yeah what what is what is he doing? Yeah. I thought it was like proto germ theory. Maybe I was giving too much good faith. No, I, I no. I mean, I think I, I I think what he is after is like in nineteenth century medicine does make sense. And again, I'm not I'm not like a I'm not well versed in the history of medicine in this period. But I think basically what he's he's like he's working on something like cell theory almost. Like okay, like bio, all biology has this like fundamental stuff. What is it? And and he's thinking of it in like the primitive tissue almost, like this primal heat. Like I mean, he ha- there's the there's an antiquatedness to it that I think the novel knows is a little antiquated. But he's also, I mean, he really like he's working on like a medical theory of everything is kind of what he's trying to do. There's a passage somewhere that that says basically that he's do he, that he's like kind of doing medieval bullshit, and I wish I had it. Yeah, well, and that's um, why I said doctor like Doctor Frankenstein, uh, right? Yeah, that there, yeah, he's a uh, you know he 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 kind of is flipping the terms of of the scientific method in that you know you don't you're not like I am 
I'm going to prove that like I can create life. That's not how it works. I mean, you, you that that kind of inverts things. It's not the scientific method can't be like kind of goal directed in that sort of way, or it doesn't. It does, and that and that yeah. Like so with Frankenstein, that like puts him in more of the vein of like the medieval alchemist, you know. But there's another moment where there's a couple of moments where he's using a microscope, right? Yes. So we get like mm-hmm. very modern tech. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. No, exactly. Like he's not, he's not like a a really retrograde figure. I think other than there's a sort of like ambition to him that I think doesn't quite jive with what his chosen discipline is. If that the secret of everything, yeah. Yeah, the the microscope thing. The mi- yeah, the microscope thing. Yeah, um, and he uses a stethoscope, which freaks everyone out. Like, you oh, know, right. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and we all know that the microscope's first sight was sperm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. For, for real, <laughs> I'm not being silly. And that's, we all knew that anyway. That's why. That's why. <laughs> right? Without that's knowing why, it, that's did. why Stern includes drawings of sperm in Tristram Shanty. Sorry, humans have been gross for as long as there have been humans. Sorry to burst your bubble. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How does the dick work? Is uh, one of the uh, just like trans historical uh, questions that humans have pursued, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so uh, he at one point we're told Lydgate wants to uh, quote to do good small work for Middle March and great work for the world. Okay, so that's his plan. Then there's the Reverend Edward Casabon, or I, I should like I, I I'm going to say Casabon. It's how the BBC um, miniseries. Series, uh, it says it, uh, which is great. You should watch. Uh, everyone should watch that. It's, it's an excellent um, uh, adaptation. I've also heard British academics particularly pronounce it Casabon, which uh, okay. I don't. I I think I'm just going to say Casabon because it's easier for my American mouth <laughs> to, to do. <laughs> They're not entitled to be the arbiters of pronunciation on anything. Yeah. British people are <laughs> right, directly yeah, yeah. wrong. Yeah, get back to me when you don't call it a fillet of beef. Right. Get back to me when you don't call it Don Juin, as though that's the name of that fucking novel. Or Don Quixote, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but it's funny though. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. yeah. Of course, of course. Uh, I say with. The, I think we let him do it. I, I say with much love, other than the imperializing. Video. But yeah, so so we got Casabon, who's this rich clergyman that becomes Dorothea's husband, and he spent decades on research into antiquities trying to prove the unity underneath all belief systems, with the idea of ultimately publishing his key to all mythologies, which sounds just insufferable, <laughs> as is no. Casabon. Yeah. Okay, that's why you need a dissertation advisor. <laughs> you need somebody to be like, bro. Yeah. Do you know how many fucking theories of everything there would be oh, yeah. if they were allowed to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Oh, somebody let Jordan B. Peterson write it and not, uh, no. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, wait. Wait. I'm, now I'm thinking, wait, is, is, are, there, are there Jordan Peterson aspects to Casabod? Yeah, kind of a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Point, pointless bloviating. Yeah, pointless bloviating. Exactly. Um, Dying yeah, of uh, meat consumption. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. he kind of does. We'll get to that next week. <laughs> so, so Casabon's somewhat distant cousin, Will Ladislaw. Uh, he's he's another sort of primary character. I mean, he, and he's like this Shellian figure, as as Felicia Bonaparte notes in the Oxford introduction. Though, though he's he's much more of a dilettante than Percy Shelley was, and Shelley was plenty of a dilettante, right? And so, was he? Is he Shelley like because I want to jump his bones? Y- yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> yes, I mean the the sort of hotness about him for sure, but but also like he just he has a he has like a Shellian idea. Like I'll get into it. I'll I'll get into like what the Shelley residences are. But I do think I do think that like the the, the wanting to jump his bones is, is part of it. 
for sure. Yeah. So when we first meet Ladislaw, he's a painter, then he's a journalist. He's super interested in reformist politics. That's a major Shelleyan resonance. And he's eager to figure out a way to make his own living, both because he hates his older asshole of a cousin, Casabon, and he doesn't want to have to depend on him, uh, but but also uh, because increasingly he wants his work to mean something. So that takes him also into the proximity with Dorothy and, and Lydgate. And then you have other characters whose concerns are more prosaic, uh, just making enough money to live and marry as, the, as they want to. Though I would still say uh, those characters are very much also part of like, how do we make sense of modernity? Like as, as a question, a, a lot of these are kind of more minor characters in the town, though, though two, Fred Vincy and Mary Garth are, do end up being quite central and actually are from, from really almost the beginning. Okay, so I'll sketch the plot lines around the principles. Um, and again, there really are multiple protagonists. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the prelude, uh, which sort of sets up the central intellectual crisis around Dorothea for sure, but I think around multiple characters. So in the prelude, Elliot, and just a couple pages, but Elliot, or rather the narrator, talks about St. Teresa of Avila, who is a 16th century Spanish saint that the novel proposes as both an example or an interesting person to think about for a meaning-seeking life, but also as an example whose terms are foreclosed by modernity. So here's here's the, kind of what, how Eliot sets this up. Teresa's passionate ideal nature demanded an epic life. What were many-volumed romances of chivalry and the social conquests of a brilliant girl to her? Her flame quickly burned up that light fuel and fed from within, soared after some illimitable satisfaction, some object which would never justify weariness, which would reconcile self-despair with the rapturous consciousness of life beyond self. She found her apos in the reform of a religious order. That Spanish woman who lived 300 years ago was certainly not the last of her kind. Many Teresas have been born who found for themselves no epic life, wherein there was a constant unfolding of far resonant action, perhaps only a life of mistakes, the offspring of a certain spiritual grandeur ill-matched with the meanness of opportunity, perhaps a tragic failure which found no sacred poet and swank unwept into oblivion. With dim lights and tangled circumstances, they tried to shape their thought and deed in noble agreement. But after all, to common eyes, their struggles seemed mere inconsistency and formlessness, for these later-born Teresas were helped by no coherent social faith and order which could perform the function of knowledge for the ardently willing soul. Their ardor alternated between a vague ideal and the common yearning of womanhood, so that the one was disapproved as extravagance and the other condemned as a lapse. So there's one way you can read that as pr pretty reactionary, like this loss of a coherent social faith, uh, the loss of religion as the fundamental problem of modernity. But I don't think that's what Eliot's after. It's more like the complexity of modern social relations have also entailed a kind of alienation for the individual. Also, like women whose gender sort of forecloses a lot of opportunities at this time kind of face a unique uh, set of uh, additional problems in, in, in encountering that. And like that's like a lot of this is stuff Marxists say, right? Um, although in, in somewhat different terms than Eliot. And, and for Eliot, a big part of the alienation has to do with the vast proliferation of human knowledge as well. Um, so like reconciling what we know the world to be scientifically with our human desires and passions and interests. All right. So here are the main plot threads in the first half. 
We open with with Dorothea Brooke and her sister, Celia, two young women whose parents are both dead, and they live with their rich uncle, uh, Mr. Brooke, the the squire of Tipton Grange, who I I have to say Robert Hardy plays in the BBC miniseries. Just he does such a great job of a gentry dipshit. He he, he gives him all these like verbal affectations. He's like, I I looked at the Shelley lot as a young man, you know. We, we're we all for reform here, aren't we? You know. Not too fast, though, you know. Anyway, it's great. So like, Dorothea is not like other girls. I will just note that. Yes, Dorothea is not like <laughs> other girls. That's very... Sorry, I got yeah. Mr. Mr. Brooke will be more of a character next week. Uh, but it, yeah, um, Dorothea, yes. Not like other girls, as we'll see. Dorothea and Celia have a close but fraught relationship. Celia is depicted as worldly and pr- pragmatic. And also, she when she like chides Dorothea, she does it in this, quote, low guttural. And I just... Just have this this like bird that just like you know like do 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 you know which she calls her a lot. Oh, I have a different impression, which is like someone who has a sweet voice until they're mad. Okay, yeah, and, yes, yes, yep. yes, yeah. I think of it as like her her secret demon voice. Yes, yeah. yeah tiny Satan lives inside of no, her. That- that's much better. I think I was getting stuck on her, uh, that she always calls Dorothea Dodo. Uh, <laughs> but, so, and yeah, so Celia is worldly pragmatic. Dorothea is the idealist. There's a Puritanness about Dorothea. Uh, so, like, Celia suggests they go through their dead mother's jewels to see which of them wants what. And Dorothea is like, no, jewels are dumb. They're trinkets, but you should totally wear them, though. They would look great on you. <laughs> wear this necklace. It's so pretty on you, the blonde sister. Yeah, I mean, there, yes, and again, like when I say this novel is funny, it's like there is a lot of like cutting shit in this, you know. So, um, mm-hmm. anyway, so in the first chapter, uh, we're told Dorothea loves horseback riding, but decides to give it up because quote riding was an indulgence which she allowed herself in spite of conscientious qualms. She felt that she enjoyed it in a pagan, sensuous way, and always looked forward to renouncing it. Um, <laughs> that saddle's hidden, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. If you're looking forward to renouncing it, you never will. That's, this is why we have, the ladies must ride side saddle, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So she she's a little much, uh, but she's also kind of awesome. Um, she spends a lot of time in the first volume drawing plans for improved peasant cottages, as I said, and pressing her uncle to build them. Um, so M- Mr. Brooke, is, as we'll talk more about, certainly next week, he's he's this vaguely reformist rich dude because you know he wants to get elected to parliament as a liberal, but he's also regarded as we're told the worst fucking landlord in the county because he won't spend any money like fixing anyone's house there it is yeah we all need a home none of us need a landlord yes no no landlords <laughs> i think we're all we're all comfortable with that position on this podcast um yep and Dorothea calls that shit out directly. She says, I, I think we deserve to be beaten out of our beautiful houses with a scourge of small cords, all of us who let tenants live in such styes as we see round us. Life in cottages might be happier than ours if they were real houses fit for human beings for whom we expect duties and affectations. Um, so Lib, not really revolutionary by a long shot, but you know, also pretty critical of her own class position. And she tells Mr. Brooke to get fucked, which is kind of great, you know. Okay, so Dorothea has a would-be suitor and a neighboring aristocrat, Sir James Chetham, who is this Tory D-bag. <laughs> like, just... <laughs> this- <laughs> 
he's you really yeah he's like quote affable but like a frat bro or i guess like an eaton bro <laughs> um he's reactionary as shit and just insufferable and dorothea does get him to build the nice cottages but is also like lol no you're dumb and gross um and, and she's right <laughs> she's absolutely right yes she is yeah can't deny it so sir james has to marry celia instead which is actually a win-win for both of them like they're 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 like intellectually suited to each other and you know but yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, Dorothea becomes interested in the Reverend Edward Casabon, who, again, is a scholar at work on, quote, a key to all mythologies. And all of her friends are like, ew, why he looks like John Locke and makes too much noise when he eats soup. Uh- <laughs> That's a really good reason not to marry someone. Sorry to Katie's pap pap. That's two really good reasons not to <laughs> marry <true>. someone. <laughs> And the thing is, they're not wrong, but they're right for the wrong reasons, right? So the problem with him isn't that he's weird looking, though he is 45 and she's 19, which, you know, red flags there. But another major problem is that he's 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 a hard on. And, and what's more, he's actually pursuing a dumb intellectual project, right? Like, we know from as soon as it's told what he's working on, we're like, we're supposed to be like, what the fuck? You know? yeah. So. yeah, that's a big oh, no. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and he's really shitty about it. Yes. Oh, yeah. He's just such a fucking pompous. He's he's the worst guy in a grad seminar, except he's 45 and like a, really rich. So it's even. It's, so he's the worst know. guy in a grad seminar. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. OK. But uh, Dorothea is drawn to him because she wants to work with him in this research. And, and the novel makes clear one big reason, a very, a very smart and earnest young woman like Dorothea with both this social conscience and intellectual ambition is drawn to Casabon is because of the extremely limited opportunities for 19th century women who wanted to pursue things like scholarship or social reform or, or like a life of the mind in some way. So what I'm hearing is that Casabon is actually the worst professor in a grad seminar and that poor Dorothea is about to be quote mentored by him. Yeah, actually, yes, that's no, you're <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah, that's what it is. Yes, that is exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, very seriously, because like, yeah, I mean, he has all the power, not just like because of like gender structure at the time. Also, yeah, I mean, he's the fucking like the big ass landlord. He's yeah, I mean, the age difference. Like, yes, that 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 is exactly who this who this guy is in, in 19th century terms. Uh, so, so sometimes Dorothea expresses that, you know, basically that set of tensions in line with gender constructions of the era. So like what her uncle's pressing her, like why she wants to marry Casabon. And there Mr. Brooke is actually cut her. He's like, really? You, you want to do this? Right. So yeah, she says, fair question, uncle. Fair question. Yeah, fair, fair question. And, and Dorothea says, I should not wish to have a husband very near my own age, um, said Dorothea with grave decision. I should wish to have a husband who is above me in judgment and in all knowledge. So that's very mid 19th century gender constructions happening there but at other times she directly expresses this kind of like longing for like intellectual life or intentions in terms of the social limitations placed on women in in kind of heartbreaking ways so there's one line uh, where she says i have known so few uh, ways of making my life good for anything of course my notions of usefulness must be narrow i must learn new ways of helping people and i mean like darthea is sort of I mean, because of her class position, like substantially more empowered than kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of women would be. I mean, she she has command over a fairly sizable fortune. But even so, like she like there just there just aren't a lot of channels for her to apply that in a way that she feels and, you know, is is actually like in any way contributing to the world. Right. 
Well, and she does, again, this is one of her not like other girls qualities that I don't mind, which is that, you know, you'd send her to school if we know in this book, because she begins to learn Greek so quickly. But it's like, if you just send her to school, she's going to be so much smarter than this dude in a matter of like uh, two months. Yeah. 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 You know, it's like never about intellectual capacity. It's just about like, she doesn't have enough fun shit to do. Yes. And she also doesn't realize that everyone is actually a child like she is. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, for sure. So so Casabon is obviously amazed that a hot, brilliant young woman wants anything to do with his pedantic, boring John Locke looking ass. Um, he is, I'm serious, he's described as looking like John Locke, which if you like Google so John funny. Locke and you'll know why that that's a sick burn. <laughs> so they marry, but as you, can you ima- as you can imagine, it very quickly fails to live up to Dorothea's expectations. So Casabon won't let her help with much of anything. Uh, he develops a heart condition midway through the novel, and we'll get more into that next week. Too much meat. Too much, too much meat and, and also too much stress, the long hours that he spent studying. And, oh. and it's also like, yeah, he, he, eats, he eats beef and porridge. That's, you know, it's, he's a 19th century Briton, you know, rich, rich Briton. But yeah, so he, he finally agrees to let her help uh, him pull his dumbass and voluminous notebooks in, into order for publication by, by having her read them aloud and then just barking at her when she comes across an interesting passage. And he's like, Mark! Like, yeah, great. God, what fun. What a husband. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I I see I see why she was in, into the older guy. <laughs> older oh, guy here. But the marriage is extremely strained and suffocating for Dorothy and no shit, right? And moreover, Casabot is becoming very jealous of his hot Shellyan cousin Will Ladislaw. Ladislaw is the grandson of Casabon's aunt, who should have inherited Lowick, which is Casabon's estate. Except she made a quote bad match and married a Polish musician and was thus disinherited. Dorothy calls it a mésalliance. Yes, yeah, she does. Um, Which is what I'm going to say to my friends about their dumb boyfriends from here on. Out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what is this guy like a Polish musician? <laughs> So yeah, so Casabon tries to make amends for this by supporting Will, which is the source of mutual resentment. And, and Will, again, is very eager to be free of this obligation. The first time that Will and Dorothea meet is when Will Ladislaw is, is painting at Lowick. But then Casabon uh, finances a trip for Will to Europe. And Dorothea unexpectedly meets him again when she and Casabon are honeymooning in Rome. And Casabon has basically abandoned Dorothea in museums while he goes and does uh, like grad student slash, you know, gross professor hours in libraries, which is actually what Dorothea wanted to do with him. And holy shit, this is the most boring trip I have ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. Except then a hot dude shows up and she's like, awooga, but I must hide it even from myself. Yes, yes. There's, there's a. The last novel I did, Wuthering Heights, we talked about was bad at repression. Dorothy is quite good at repression. Very, yeah. <laughs> She's amazing at it. Amazing. She's not um, like accidentally busting at random times throughout the novel. No, and, no but yeah, pill- not accidentally, not on purpose. Tearing, tearing pillows apart and stuff. My favorite. So yeah, so Will and uh, Dorothy are instantly hot for each other, though yeah, mutually restrained way. Dorothea first starts to doubt Casabon's life work, uh, and also admit that he's an asshole via Will's contempt. And, and also, Will tells her Casabon's research is stupid. It is. Uh, so like, and, and like the reasons Will gives is it's a century out of date, um, and it's made more so because Casabon is a British chauvinist who doesn't even know what other scholars are working on. So Will has this like kind of quip that is actually very. Dorothea is it sort of like really destabilizes her whole view of like what's happening. 
So Will says, I, I merely mean, said Will in an offhand way, that the Germans have taken the lead in historical inquiries, and they laugh at results which are got by groping about in woods with a pocket compass while they have made good roads. When I was with Mr. Casabon, I saw that he deafened himself in that direction. It was almost against his will that he read a Latin treatise written by a German. <laughs> I was very sorry. This is literally theory of everything, Professor. Yes. Like, and, and everybody around him is like, bro, you can't, that's not a thing. Like, you can't write that. That's not a thing. And even if it was, you haven't read nearly enough because you're so up your own ass, you don't even know what this would look like, you know, in, in, a, in any kind of real way. You are not Aristotle dum-dum yeah. move on yeah exactly so anyway Casabon gets jealous uh when will gets hired by mr brook to edit this reformist newspaper with an eye toward getting mr brook elected to parliament which we'll talk more about next week Casabon uses it as a pretext to ban him from visiting Lowick, ostensibly because the job isn't fancy enough but really to keep Ladislaw and dorothea apart and again more, more on that in the the next episode so the other major characters uh, will be more central to the ne- our next episode as well, but I'll, I'll talk just a bit about them now. Um, so first, again, the doctor, Tertius Lydgate, who intersects with Dorothea when he treats Casabon after his heart attack and warns Dorothea to keep him from stressing himself. Um, so as, as Casabon slowly realizes, his his wife um, is, is, is way too good for him and, and his life's work is meaningless. <laughs> so there's a lot, yeah. yeah, so just um, just don't get too excited about any of that. No. So Lydgate has aristocratic connections. He, he is the nephew of a baronet, but he personally has no money and is committed to making his way as a professional man. Go back and listen to our Persuasion and D.H. Lawrence episodes for more baronets if you want to do a baronet-themed afternoon. <laughs> and know what a baronet exactly is. I'm not going to rehearse that now, but just rich asshole, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a dumb title. Yeah. Dumb, rich quasi-noble asshole. So he, so Lydgate was recruited to Middlebarge by Nicholas Bolstrode, who is this another insufferable character, this asshole Methodist banker, to work for free at, at the Fever Hospital. Hey. Bolstrode's founded great love, love, love capitalists. Like, let's get volunteers, you know. They have interns. This is also like uh, Katie's favorite um, literary method, which is giving people names like Hackbutt. Yeah. Oh no. It, yeah. 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 It is like <laughs> it does. It it it's some Dickensian shit, right? It's like suddenly it's we're good. oh right, this, this is a Victorian <laughs> novel. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah um, no, and it and it's it it is it, it it's a name that is implies such kind of like asshole mission and sufferability. It's it's right up there with some of of, of Dickens' best uh, character names for Square sure. Square Man Squarrington. Yeah, Square <laughs> Man Squarrington. Yep. Yeah. Fanny Assingham. <laughs> <laughs> Fanny Assingham. Uh, by the way, Henry James loved uh, loved this novel, but um, that surprised me did. not at all. Yeah, yeah. There really is a character named Hackbutt in this book. I just want to make yes. clear that was yes. not a joke. Yes. That was, yes. I mean, it is. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. yeah. So Lydgate immediately starts making enemies, both because of his connection to Bolstrode. As you can imagine, everyone hates Nicholas Bolstrode because he's a scolding puritanical dickhead. And because Lydgate thinks the local doctors are quacks and idiots, which they are. Um, and, and also, he so he won't prescribe quack medicine, which pisses off the doctors and the grocers and the apothecaries. Like, everybody's like, wait, you're not, you're, you're not in the pyramid no scheme. No leeches at all? 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah no leeches. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. You think too many leeches killed a guy. Okay, fine. Yeah. I can, wait, I can't, I can't prescribe tincture of, of, of pig asshole. Like what? You know, <laughs> it's just dung. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not going to hurt anyone. Wait, wait. It's dried out. But, but I, I want to inject mercury into his penis. You, you say that that's not, <laughs> <laughs> there's no scientific basis for this. There's like a low key Jonathan Swiftiness here where you're like, well, what if we force the poop right back up their butt? yes exactly as was the south park episode taught us then you you do actually poop out your your mouth if you (laughs) your bolsonaro like whatever you want yeah yeah, exactly yeah bolsonaro right it's biology Okay, so Lydgate definitely thinks of himself as a man of principle, but almost immediately he's making some compromises. So, for example, Lydgate is friends with Mr. Fairbrother, who's the card played and billiards played. Very, very affable. Like he's he's one of the best characters in the novel. Um, but he's he's also a, a local mainline a- Anglican clergyman. He's fair. Yeah, he's fair. Yes, like Fairbrother. Brother. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Ah. Another. Oh, okay. Now I know who this guy is. Now I remember another Victorian, Victorian ass name. But no, he, he Fairbrother is like one of my favorite characters in the book. He's and Fairbrother's an entomologist. He like collects bugs and shit, and, and so they they kind of bond over science. But when Lydgate is called to vote for who is going to get the chaplaincy of the new hospital, he votes for Bolstrode's uh, Jonathan Edwards ass choice, uh, Mister Tyke. Even though Lydgate thinks Fairbrother is a lot better, and Lydgate gives zero shits about theology, but he doesn't want to piss off his benefactor. So he makes this kind of like morally compromised choice there that he does a lot of like kind of equivocation and casuistry to talk himself, oh, it's actually the right thing to do. But it's this is this is clearly a moment where Lydgate's been kind of pulled away from his idea of like, oh, I have like these unshakable principles. Another thing that happens, Lydgate starts flirting with Rosamund Vincy, the mayor's very hot, um, but also pretty vacuous daughter. Um, and, and, and he's so overt about it that he ends up having to marry her because, you know, everyone's gossiping and he's like, oh, man, of principle, I wouldn't want to ruin her reputation. But also, like, who doesn't, you know, want to marry a hot lady? Yeah, and also, right. And, 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 you know, it's like there's not a lot going on in this town, right? You know, so. Yeah, fair. No. For a novel about everything. Yes. And, it's, and its setting is what allows us, I think, to get started thinking about everything, right? Which yes. is like this compacted space. It oh, is yeah. sort of a boring little town. It, it, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's it, it's like, and and when we talk more about the the historical landscape next week, we'll see, like the way in which capital H history starts to really reshape this um, is is so it has all these connections to the broader world, but at the same time, it's very easy as you're living there to feel like it's this like this uh, hermetically sealed kind of soft little bubble which it is it's both of those things you know um i just really like myself my work i'm just i dig the entanglement of geography and history as something to take up i just think that's that's a really cool thought yeah yes yeah, yeah no for for sure no I, it, it, it's, it's more, ladies and gentlemen <laughs> it, it's one of the things that i have definitely most um interested in it, 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 as as i finished the as i finished the novel uh, but oh, so yeah just the backstory back get mentioned so here's another like litigated marriage he wanted to marry once before while he was studying in france and he fell in love with this actress who stabs her husband on stage she says she slipped and gets off a murder charge but this is what megan was talking about uh, she confesses that quote he wearied me he was too fond he would live in paris and not in my country that was not agreeable to me yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> he was yeah. like too into me and it was so annoying. Yeah. So I stabbed yeah. him on stage. <laughs> yeah. So as, as Meg said, you know, this book is not at all convinced that marriage is good. Ed Rosamond and Lidgate's marriage is miserable. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that happens uh, in our next episode. But finally, the, the other major set in this first half is Fred Vinci, who's Rosamond's brother of... <laughs> Total fails. So mad at him. Oh, the failingest of all. And, and Mary Garth. And, and yeah, Fred is big wet boy, uh, fail son of, again, the local mayor. And it, it, definitely petty bourgeois. Uh, so Mr. Vinci is a ribbon manufacturer. The Vincys are upwardly mobile, but they, that means they live right up to their means. Like they, there is no spare cash laying around. Mr. Vincy has sent Fred to Cambridge to, you know, like, oh, I want my kids to be fancier than I am. And, and Fred promptly fails out. Uh, so he can sit around playing the flute all day. <laughs> so anyways, what, Mr. Fred Failson. Yeah. What of what, what our, uh, our, uh, our friends on Twitter uh, compared him to uh, Ron Burgundy from Anchorman? And, yeah, you know, he, yeah, he but, plays the jazz flute. I, I believe that was uh, uh, Max. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a great comparison. And, and he's, yeah, so uh, Fred is also in love with Mary Garth, who's this distant cousin whose who's family has skewed more toward the lower middle classes. Uh, the, the, they're kind of diverging paths with the Vincies. Mary is also, she's got this job nursing this other mutual relation, Mr. Featherstone, who is a shouty old asshole who is quite rich and enjoys using that to torment all of his relatives who are similarly assholes. Um, it's widely believed that Fred will actually inherit Stone Court, Mr. Featherstone's estate, and, and he definitely seems to be the favorite. The one thing Mr. Featherstone does early in the novel is make Fred get a letter from Mr. Bolstrode, who is, again, distantly related, like the smallness of the town's social circle again, right? But basically, he, like, he wants Fred to get Bolstrode to state that Fred hasn't been seeking credit on the expectation that he will inherit. Oopsies. Fred, Fred really needs the money because he's run up all kinds of gambling debt. But when Featherstone finally dies, it turns out he left everything to this guy, Joshua Riggs, who was a hither, Featherstone's hitherto unknown illegitimate son. <sighs> On his deathbed, oh. Featherstone actually demanded Mary burn a will, uh, which she refuses because she rightly thinks that that will make her super suspect. And, and then she's a little guilty about having done so since it might have secured to Fred this fortune. Although she shouldn't be because Fred is a dickhead. Um, so and, am I wrong? My memory of this is that it's narrated through her mother, right? So it's like an indirect discourse of this. This is, I again, it's like because there's so much in this book, details escape me. Sometimes. No, her her mother does. Like it, it's narrated a couple times. The first time I think it, it's sort of um, it's 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 omniscient third, uh, just kind of observing the scene. But then like the mother like sort of gets more into the kind of like the, okay. the psychology and emotion around it. But yeah, you're I mean, right. Mary That's- is a sweetie, but she is highly overburdened by the care of others, which yes. has like really sapped her in a yes. lot of ways. She has yes. 81 siblings. Yes. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and so, right. So, I mean, one way Fred's a dickhead, he, he had gotten Mary's father, Caleb Garth, who's a land manager to sign for his loans and then couldn't pay because the asinine horse trading deal, like literally a horse trading deal that Fred was scheming fell through. When he inherits nothing, he definitely can't pay Caleb back. And Mary's like, look, I like you for some reason, but you suck. Also, it would be a mockery if you tried to be a priest, which is the only thing you've been educated for. So, Tune in next week to find out all this all ends. Uh, <laughs> Tune in next week when I have finished the book and know how this ends. Yeah. <laughs> Same Z's. That was actually quite pithy, all things. I don't know. For me, it was like, that was 
keeping well, it real. Thank you. Because, yeah, uh, yeah I, <laughs> I was very intimidated trying to like pull this this 800 page, but he had only 400 pages here, but still Christ. Um, and yeah, I mean, the you know, so one thing to say, just uh, like to note about the form of it. One reason it's so long is it started as two separate projects. So she was working on this long story called Miss Brooke about Dorothea and she's working on this novel called Middlemarch which is about Lydgate and the kind of professionals and at some point she's just like wait what if I put these together and have like town and country and and stuff and and actually yeah, it's Godfather it. too yeah 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 right <laughs> that's yeah exactly and if you actually if you want to hear a, a fuller discussion on that I, I found a great um, BBC podcast in, in our uh, in our times uh, on Middlemarch where they talk about a lot of that context but but yeah so it it, it started as two separate books but i also think that like you know that sense to pull these two stories together uh, both explains the complexity of it but also does get at that this is a novel that does the realest thing about individual character but it's also super committed to the social and like the the giant like set of contingencies that make the social in a way that that's just gonna i mean that's a really interesting project and that's gonna just make a massive monster of a book yeah 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 it's a novel and about you, everything. Yeah. And you actually can't even you, – you couldn't go smaller than this town and you couldn't make the book smaller than this if you really wanted to do – if you really wanted to do what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Like totally. bizarrely. So what is the context that we need? I know we'll have two genres of context, but yeah. – right. So, right. So next week, I'll talk a bit more about Middlemarch as a historical novel and Elliot's interest in the historical settings. She, she chooses um, a, a time of substantial political and economic transformation in Britain. But this week, I'm going to uh, focus on Elliot's interest in epistemology and scientific discoveries of the Victorian period. So since we we did Silas Marner last year, I won't get too much into Elliot's biography, though I did want to note some of the major points, uh, particularly as they seem relevant to Middlemarch. So again, Elliot, as I think we all know, is the pen name for Marianne Evans. Um, and everyone in the mid-19th century knew that Evan, it was the pen name for Evans. Um, this is Acton Bell shit. Why are you even doing this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, I, there were so many women writers, but there was still also that cultural prejudice like, oh, ladies shouldn't be doing this. Um, you, know, you know, and yeah, so, but it's, it is weird, yeah. So everybody but Mary Shelley, who was like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm doing what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, Mary Shelley operating in the the radical circles, too, uh, might have had something to do with that. She was like, my dad told me to publish under my own name. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my dad said it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. My dad says if I do it in the house, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, the Shelley's got up to some some fun stuff and some also really asshole stuff on Percy's part. But but right, so everyone knows it's Evans' pen name uh, pretty much from the time she published Adam Bede in 1859. But she she did keep using it. It was kind of her professional nom de plume at that point. In addition to being one of 19th century Britain's most influential novelists, she was a critic, editor, journalist, and translator. And famously, she had a multi-decade romantic relationship with the philosopher George Henry Lewis. And, and Lewis was already married and couldn't get a divorce from his wife, which at that time required an act of parliament, um, unless you could sort of prove adultery. 
And so Elliot and he lived openly together for decades, which is pretty sexually progressive for the uh, 1800s. Like actually uh, Engels and his longtime partner also uh, like, you know, we were just like, I mean, and, and with, with, uh, with, with Lewis and Elliot, it was more like um, they're, they just couldn't get married, but they're like, fuck it. We're going to do it anyway. With Engels, it was much more like marriage is stupid. You know? <laughs> so, I know. It's like, I bet Lewis didn't write a book called women and how they labor a lot and that is dumb yeah that's yeah. the name of angle's book just so you know yes yeah <laughs> the women and how they labor a lot and that is dumb by frederick Engels, right before he worked on the communist <laughs> manifesto yeah uh, we all know it we all love it <laughs> but you know and we we also i think though you know yes i'd be pretty sexually progressive for the 1800s we also might think about that with regard to the skeptical views on marriage we see in middle march uh, just one possibility also, again, Lewis is a philosopher, and, and Eliot was highly interested in philosophy. I mean, I think that was part of what drew them together. She had been an evangelical as a young woman, but by the time she's a novelist, she's given that up and is quite skeptical of anything like formal theology or dogma. But pretty much all of her novels are concerned with this idea of epistemological and ontological meaning in an era when the certainties of organized religion no longer seem sustainable. It's also um, very novelist in a given moment to be like, I've thrown off the, the shackles of a religious ideology in favor of a secular one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I like, God, a lot of the big Victorian, like liberal novelists would fit in that vein. Um, I, I also think, though, that's, you know, like, that is such a novelly tension from the get go. I mean, we see that in Defoe, like right, that. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah, that like, um, okay, I've got this Puritan way of knowing, but I also like it doesn't really work anymore. And like that creates like I think for Defoe, like this big sort of crisis of faith. But then I think, um, and you know, like yeah, our, our friend uh, and, and and former former guest uh, David Diamond uh, has worked a lot on this. And, and Katie, I know this is very much in your wheelhouse. Like the 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 sort of like. Uh, ep epistemological technologies of like Calvinism, but then like in a secular form via the novel. Like, yeah, that that's that's an 18th and 19th century story, I think. For sure. And you can also, you can really tell that George Eliot is, Marianne, is an ex-religious person sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and her references also are super interesting in this vein. Like she goes after, t like she references Thomas Hooker. I th is is the one that she keeps coming back to mm -hmm. the the Connecticut Puritan who was like very much all about letting people like you didn't have to have land to vote was his big giant deal. Oh, okay, um, yeah, right, right. And her so I know that Quakers don't you know come from they don't come off the vine in America, but. She makes all these – she makes like a – who gets described uh, – Dorothea gets described as a – like looking like a Quaker. Yeah. Yes. And so so I've been trying to figure out what to do with her references. They're all – they're all of – they're all in some sort – they're all in the same vein and they're also all about religious figures who are sort of like very – I don't know. I haven't thought this through totally quite enough but who had a lot of interest in government for reasons that weren't exactly like I know that God wants the government to be this way. Uh, I don't think I'm saying a full thought here but I think I think next week this would be – good to talk yeah, about. Yeah, no, for sure. And and there's, yeah, there, uh, there, uh, there's such a, like, 
ah, well, I mean, almost Marxist historicist, but also deeply tragic line about like history full of like unhistoric acts or something like that, which, which yeah. I think is like both a very, in, in one way, very kind of like Christian sort of idea, mm-hmm. but then also like is uh, like, uh, I don't know. It's yeah. Well, we'll yeah, I, I agree. I think we'll, I think we'll, we'll all have more to sort of like say to, to kind of finish that thread next week. Yes. But, okay. So I, I'll just I put in a, a couple key ideas and discourses that Elliot was fascinated by as a way into some of the stuff we've been talking about. First, and again, uh, Felicia Bonaparte's Oxford introduction is really helpful on this. Uh, the concept of the imagination, um, which has definitively romantic, like as in the sense of romanticism resonances, Shelley and Coleridge both discussed the concept of imagination a lot. Um, and Eliot very much takes up and runs with that early 19th century discourse, in this case, the Victorian period, though. So the imagination we get out of Romanticism is a specific power of the mind that allows you to reach new truths that transcend the sort of sensory data that in empiricism, as we always talk about with 18th century texts, forms the substratum of the mind. So one way to think of this uh, is, is a kind of synthesis of rationalism, like Descartes, solitary thinker. You know, we build up mental life basically from this innate capacity to reason. And empiricism, where everything we know has its origin outside of us. So imagination kind of combines all of that while also opening new directions. Um, So certainly for Shelley, this had real world implications. So like in a defense of poetry, Shelley famously calls poets the unacknowledged legislators of the world. This idea that poets have this exceptional creative, like what makes you a poet is having this exceptional creative faculty that allows you to arrive at new political truths um, and revelations that are unavailable to others whose thinking is more limited. That's Shelley's claim. I love that for him. I love his like, I have awesome hair and a hard dick and I'm going to go around telling you what poets are good for. Like he's, I have such a conflicted relationship with Shelley because he a lot, but he's a dick. I he just, is <laughs> such a fucking asshole. Like someone who so needed to just get punched in the face. But I'm like, but there are other th- ways. It's like that, like a world where, like we're like radical, po- like radical minded poets are like <laughs> shaping. So it's like that's amazing, you know. <laughs> but like. I mean, like what again? For the most part, with some glaring exceptions, um, good politics, great politics, horrible person, you know. But uh, yeah, cool death, metal. So as I say, Elliot runs with these ideas a lot, and we we see it in her perpetual fascination with the intersection of science, like which is, you know, this account pure empiricist knowledge seeking, and art, this kind of creative and generative force. And one way of thinking about why Casabon and Lydgate both fail in their knowledge quest is because in various ways, they're they're both too rooted in the empiricist paradigm, um, though Lydgate certainly gets a lot farther than John Locke face over here. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> a mean thing to say. It is. No, I mean, t- saying you look like John Locke, it's like, Jesus Christ, okay, I'm just, I'm going to go curl up in my room now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that hurts. Yeah. It's almost as mean as saying that someone is Hopsburgian. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah you, you ain't lying. You're, yeah, you're really not lying. Other lock. Well, no, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Democrat. I don't. Yeah, fuck off. Uh, I, I'm skeptical <laughs> of royalty. No, you're not. Um, so <laughs> there were some sensations about that reflection yeah. of that man. Yeah, again, empiricist hippie psychedelic lock. Pretty cool uh, political theory lock. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, um, for sure. 
so of, of all the major male characters, Ladislaw probably gets the farthest in this kind of like art science imagination shit than any of them. Um, again, hot guy, hot guy alert. Hot, and, and yes, yet another shelling out resonance, right? The, the hotness. Um, and again, Felicia Bonaparte's intro really good on all of this. Um, so one final account of Middlemarch uh, and, and uh, much more in, uh, in 19th century thought that I really can't recommend enough is Gillian Beer's Darwin's Plots, um, Evolutionary Narrative in Darwin, George Eliot, and 19th Century Fiction. So this book came out in the early 1980s and remains highly influential in Victorian studies. Among other things, Beer corrects a lot of nonsense around Darwin's reception. Uh, so she let, and this is like so cool, she led to see a lot of points of alignment with, say, the anarchist Peter Kropotkin. Um, yes, I know, Megan, Megan giving us the heart sign right now, totally. <laughs> Rather than the fashy social Darwinist, uh, like, like you know, Beer, it's like, yeah, that's not the direction Darwin was going at all. Is this my moment to say that anytime a liberal uses the expression mutual aid they are in fact deploying the language of peter kropotkin and are not allowed to negatively describe anything as anarchism i endorse that point and yes <laughs> yes you should absolutely say that now that is the law can we bang a gavel yes <laughs> <laughs> mr kropotkin wins yeah kropotkin wins yes uh over 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 the libs uh o- o- peter kropotkin owning the libs via stuff libs also say <laughs> Um, and without knowing where without knowing where it comes from, right? I mean, it's the weaponization of the language of actual leftism. Yeah, but it, sorry, I mean, I know I'm going off on a thing, but it's like I just get personally well, deeply offended by that. No, yes, I, I as you should. But I also again, like, I think that that also has weird connections with how Darwin gets misread. I mean, that's Beers. Yeah, beers I think playing. so too. Yeah. Darwin was saying the opposite. Now I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. Right. Darwin was not the Nazi that he's been misread as. No. No. Um, But Elliot was super interested in Darwin. um, And and one way Darwinian thinking comes to play in Middlemarch is, again, epistemology. So one of Beer's main claims is that Darwin's own thinking was shaped by 19th century literary movements and ideas about uh, the function of narrative. So Beer says that Darwin, uh, Darwinian natural selection really doesn't make grand claims about the future, which is something the social Darwinists sort of tried to do with like eugenics and shit. It, its randomness means that predicting where an entire ecological system is going is, is impossible. But what you can do, and here's where literature and narrative as epistemology comes in, is piece together clues of the past. Um, you can see, for example, how you got a modern bird from a dinosaur or how you got modern humans from primates a, a couple million years ago. I mean, I love the sort of one of the things that I find interesting about the sort of Darwinian epistemology is that what you just described, which is the accidentalness of it. So accident almost certainly gave us like 40 different kinds of animal that could eat food out of trees yeah but somehow yes. the giraffe was like okay yeah, yeah yes yeah that's yes right yeah. exactly yeah that's it, it's, the, good cho- good choices there, there's no invisible had or whatever that's like and and, and actually that that said like like darwin like some other sort of uh evolutionary biologist did and again beer talks a lot about this did think like you know the giraffe keeps reaching and eventually like that changes its like biology no it's like this long <laughs> neck fucking thing happens by randomness and oh actually that turned out to work very well but it could very easily have turned out to be like a terrible uh we were a a brazilian number brazilian number of terrible ones that died out that were like let's see what happens if we make one with really long hooves exactly what if we made a fish without bones it's going to survive for four 
billion years. Yes. Yes. It's a fundamental misunderstanding about what fitness means. It doesn't mean like you can win a bodybuilding contest. It (laughs) means that you are the best adapted to whatever that happens to be in your environment at the time, which is exactly why it's relevant to a to a person like Elliot who is who wants to see what the pre what the preconditions are that people have to adapt themselves to, and then what they wind up making out of that's it. right and the like, randomness that's the function of it yeah like dinosaurs were so fucking massive like the most charismatic of megafauna because the conditions of like 200 million years ago worked for that if you just plot like absent the comet and everything else just plopped a fucking tyrannosaurus down in the like it, i mean i think even the oxygen levels wouldn't be right for it you know it just it would not right. be fitted to the current environment um and that's why i love those sort of natural histories that have a lot of fossils where you're like Ooh, that fish is weird. Yeah. Why don't you make an armored fish? Well, yeah. it didn't do great. Yes. Yeah. And and so one way we do see a lot of this line of thought in Middle March or in the novel's claims about contingency, complex relationality that come to bear in all kinds of unexpected ways. It, it also helps to further show why Casabon with his key to all mythologies and Lydgate with his primitive tissue are both off base. Like you just will not find the answer to everything that doesn't exist. But according to Beer, we also see these claims work through in the web metaphor that we see a lot in Middle March um, and the Darwin also frequently uses. So like, for example, uh, at one point, Elliot's narrator pledges she's going to be more restrained than fielding in quote that all the light i can command must be concentrated on this particular web and not dis- dispersed over that tempting range of relevance it's called the universe the web is so complex a structure that you'll never make sense of the whole thing at once but you can follow individual threads um so this i'm just going to quote a bit to, uh, from beer to wrap up in Middlemarch, George Eliot seeks out ways beyond the single consciousness she creates a sense of inclusiveness and extension Nothing is end-stopped. Multiplicity is developed through the open relation created between narrator and reader, through participation in the eminent worlds of others, and through the unlimited worlds of ideas. When she uses the image of the microscope in Middlemarch, there is no suggestion of condescension to ways of being more, more minute in scale. Rather, there is a recognition of the multiple unseen worlds by which we are surrounded and which new methods of perception may reveal without reducing the mystery inherent in the fact of multiplicity. Simultaneity of experiences is the equivalent of the novelist's art, and Middlemarch is enriched by a sense of multiple latent relations, uh, which are permitted to remain latent. So we have lateral relations and what happens if you look at sperm up close. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. not denying the, hi- the social hierarchy of humans. It's just denying the sort of that our relations to each other might be lateral to a certain degree. Yeah. Yes. Or the natural relations, I guess. I know that that's a very strange sentence for somebody who's of my epistemological character, but. Yeah. Well, and, you know, like, there's another, there's a moment where uh, I think this is in reference to Lydgate. So I think this is in the second volume. Like, uh, the Elliot's narrator refers to character as a process of unfolding. I don't know. Modern novel idea. It is. Yeah, it is. And, and it, I, I, I'm really trying to work out whether I think that is intention with certain ideas of the realist novel as this kind of all seen window into the psyche or well, like, um, like maybe like the, uh, or like the Bildungsroman where like character has a certain trajectory. I, I don't think that for Elliot it does well, or like you, you couldn't ever see what that trajectory was unless you could make sense. Like you couldn't see in advance what that trajectory was. 
unless you could really get your head around all of the contingencies that come to bear. And of course you never could. So like you can, you can look back at a life and see why it was going in a certain direction, but you couldn't like take it the present moment and then extrapolate out into the future. Um, which, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I like, it does that, does that work with the, the tradition of the novel she's in or not? I, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with that question actually. I, I sort of think that it depends what you mean by unfolding mm-hmm. because the way that I sort of read it, which could be an, you know, I haven't read the second half, so that's the other problem. But there's a way in which something can unfold that is pr- like this preconceived thing can simply unfold. Mm-hmm. You just unfold the thing and refold the thing that already exists. Mm-hmm. And that kind of to me, and I, I guess um, I did have in mind some of the resonances of the cloth manufacturing shit. Like I know ribbon's not cloth. But anyway, I do. I just think that you can see the fact that it's so clear to see, uh, for instance, that this marriage is going to be disastrous mm-hmm. and the sky's a fail son, whatever else. There's something going on there that is that is attention. And I don't know how to square the circle, but hopefully we will be able to do something with it. Yeah. So is yeah. this question in part, Katie, that like unfolding might be like it, it's always there and as opposed to it expanding? You know, as you unfold something, are you dis- are, like, are you discovering you're not building you're or maybe you can be but like are you just looking at like a giant like a you know like a uh fuck a whatever a giant piece of cloth is called and like a huge quilt and just unrolling Mm -hmm. it so Um, or are we talking about yeah okay yeah no that's great i and i don't i don't know (laughs) actually you know like um (laughs) i just it sounds like this is whether and i'm not trying to like make this a perfect analog but that it is a part of the modernness of the novel in with respect to how it works at, at the level of character yeah that that makes sense to me and i think that i i just i i know that 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 all adds up i have to know how this thing ends <laughs> yeah. yeah me too no, but but you're but you're all right like the, I, I want just the, the the idea of the modernness like as in like modernism right like yeah, it, it in some ways this like this oh, is, i didn't mean modernism do you mean like i don't know i no, i i know novel. you I know, no, I know you didn't. I, but okay. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I, no, I, I totally, I understand what you're saying that this is just a like kind of feature of modernity itself. But like, I actually do want to think like the, a bridge from this to like modernism. So like, you know, um, I uh, one thing I learned from that uh, that BBC podcast I mentioned was that uh, uh, Virginia Woolf uh, said that this was one of the few novels in English written for adults or something like that. Like so, and like Henry James, Henry James really, really loved. Yeah, of course, uh, Elliot. Is that um, you know that so like the, the modernists did kind you know the modernists who like rejected a lot of what like the Victorian realist novel was trying to do uh, much like with you know Tristram Shandy that's another object that the modernists loved they saw something and this is like yeah actually we can get behind this even though when you read it it feels so much like this is a big fucking nineteenth century novel. But I do think certain ways it's thinking about like the individual and the social are going in a direction that um, like mo- is not like kind of anathema to like what the modernists would 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 later do. Um, I'm way outside my wheelhouse, Megan. So did, does that make sense <laughs> at all, or am I just all um, ways? Well, I my knee jerk reaction is that's that's crazy talk. Yes, <laughs> sure, <laughs> <laughs> and. I need to not go with my knee-jerk reaction yeah. it, and think a- carefully about 
it's just that for me as a as a non-expert reader, yeah. this book doesn't seem to be interested in interiority in the way that, say, like Stern is. No, you're right. You're right. And so that's why I'm feeling mad about it. It's like, but the whole thing with Virginia Woolf or uh, Joyce especially, but but with modernism is this obsession with that the, that interiority is incoherent and its relation to somebody like Bergson. And right. so I feel reactive, but that doesn't mean that my reactive response is good. <laughs> I to- I totally agree with that. And I think that like as far as its psychological claim, like we we can't we, yes, I don't think my the claim would work. But Ari Wolf right, Mrs. Dalloway, the track of Clarissa Dalloway and Septimus uh, uh, Warren Smith are like the, these what the fuck do you, and then suddenly they intersect in this way you're like wait what the fuck oh, totally. okay. you know so yeah. so that's what i mean like yes i i agree it's like account of psychology is not modernist but it's account of like sociality might be in certain ways i i think that the henry james thing is helpful to me in some ways because it's essentially like she's doing with this middle with middle march location the same thing that he would do with a room full of furniture oh, and right. shit yeah. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. Oh, like that's a good point like an obsession an interest in the minute an interest in the minute, yeah and and that the minute winds up being something huge yeah and that's an interest in the ordinary as deeply important to the wide scale or the philosophical that from everyday life you get a different kind of picture and of course henry james is obsessed with this but even joy but joyce's and that's that's like you i can't think of anyone different more different stylistically between elliot and joyce no but this interest in the ordinary is is making like i said i have a knee-jerk reaction but that doesn't mean that i should like live with that what i should try and live with is the discord of it. it it this is not a claim either that i set out on the episode to make it just sort of like wait is there something here so i i want to like sit with that for like a week and kind of and, and sort of work with it and see and see what i think more that's all i mean is that it's like my knee-jerk reaction should be reframed as something like a reaction of struggling with that yeah Lesson to grad students, if you're like, that's wrong, fuck you, maybe try and sit with it and <laughs> yeah. and struggle instead of fuck you. Because that's like what I've learned now being more comfortable with my own brain. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, and sometimes it's just wrong. But, it, you know, often thinking about why a point is wrong gets you in a lot of interesting places. Yes. And that's I'm all I'm saying is that, like, maybe I could have more interesting thoughts if I let that that difficulty sit. Yeah. That's this is a free podcast. Can you believe it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Katie, uh, you got a game? I do. I do have a game. I do have a game. Okay. Oh, okay. Yes, I do have a game. <laughs> I do have a game. <laughs> Everyone, I have a game. Um, and we're all gonna play. I'm Jigsaw. We're playing a game. So today we are going to play Shark Tank. Okay. Oh no. Okay. We're playing Shark we're Tank. We're entrepreneurial today. Um, Yes, and whoever wants to be Mark Cuban, um, don't all jump at once. He owns the wrong but, uh, basketball team. He's a he's a good billionaire. <laughs> Sorry, was that was stuck. you. Okay. okay, okay, I was like pretty sure that wasn't me. Point being, do you have a game for us? I have a game. Sharks, are you ready for a game? Always. Well, the game is shark. The game is Shark Tank. The game is Shark Tank, and um. 
uh, okay, either use your imagination. Just imagine the song Fins by Jimmy Buffett. Uh, fins to the fins left, to fins the to the left, right. Fins to the right. Yeah, okay. So. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Um, <laughs> what are you guys? I'm going to do a lot of noises. About? It's hey, what, whatever. Get Jimmy? get one back to Oregon, cause <laughs> Jimmy Buffett. I, I, I'm, I'm stuck at the Buffett Jones Beach this this summer. <laughs> I really do have my coconut telegraph shirt oh, on. Yeah. I'm Republican that. Yeah. But anyway, um, okay, so. Are sharks, are you? If I wish I, I, I meant to put this the Shark Tank song on the soundboard. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so sharks, are you are you ready to hear some products that you can decide whether you want to invest in? Oh yeah. I mean, referring to our okay. earlier discussion, I will say sharks, natural selection. <laughs> so okay, so wait, I just so I because you know we do like to have some thematic connection between the game and the novel. Yes, there so, is. So what? It, yeah, what? Like capital with the march of capitalism. Like, what? How did we get from Middlemarch to Shark Tank? We got from Middlemarch to Shark Tank because these are people who, to varying degrees, are trying to success win. Okay, okay. I got you. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Gotcha. Um, and when you when you see what your options are for investing, I think that it will be very clear uh, the the connection. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, okay, and I'm just gonna you know we're gonna do a, we're gonna do a Shark Tank style. I'm gonna just ask you uh, what kind of a stake you want for what kind of money, <laughs> um, and yeah, we'll just we'll do it up. Um, so anyway, ready, sharks? Ready. Yes. Clip clop, clip clop, horsey noise, horsey noise. We don't have time to edit all the shit in that I'm going to say. It's time to live in a world of pure imagination. Sharks, have you ever wanted to sell your shitty horse to cover gambling debts <laughs> only to find that nobody wanted it? Oh, sad slide whistle noise. Next time, try our new product, Horse's Ass, the only riding pants made exclusively for fail signs. They will cushion your ass in the finest 19th century fabrics until the lady you're in love with kicks it because you fucked over her dad. Horse's ass. Okay. It's what you are. The Fred Vin- the Fred Vinci uh, sort of empire we're working yeah. with here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sharks, uh, I want to offer you an incredible deal. Mm-hmm. A 20% stake for $70,000. Okay. What do you say? I'll do seventy thousand for a fifty-one percent stake. Oh, well, you okay, very sharky of you. Only majority owner. Seventy thousand. Okay, so how? What would what would that be in 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 sterling circa eighteen thirty? <laughs> like Three hundred pounds <laughs> or something. I don't know. Um, Good as yeah. Death oh as man. So wait, I'm I'm sorry. So wait, I've got a so like I'm locked in at seventy grand, and I've got to decide how much the what percentage I think that's worth. I don't think you're locked in. Uh, at you can, grand. I think you can down okay. Bar- okay. bargain it yes. down, right? Yes, and whoever and and I know due to uh, psychic abilities, wh- which of these products will be successful? Okay. So, um, okay, yeah, whoever makes the better investments here. Um, okay. Well, here, um, I'm gonna be Fred Vinci. I'm really good at business, right? And like, no, I want to give you a hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a five percent stake <laughs> because I am so convinced wow. that yeah. it's gonna be a winner. <laughs> Doing so. business. Oh, fins to the left. Yes, we got it. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you've accepted for a 5% stake. What is it? $150,000? Yeah, yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Yeah, you're you're crushing it. <laughs> okay. And Meg, you're gonna want you're gonna want fifty-one percent. I'm, I'm gonna yeah. I mean I'm taking this deal. How can I how can I refuse this deal? Um but uh we'll see how it turns out in the end. Had <laughs> it so asked I see no downsides. Yeah. And and also this the this is like just after the Regency, like the fail sun pants was very tight. You're just sort of like bridges, you know. <laughs> A wooga, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very high waist too. I just want somebody yes. has said like you can buy stock in fluffy buns pants that are good for <laughs> bike riding horses and checking out men's butts with. <laughs> Hell yeah, I want a majority share in this. <laughs> All right, you're suspiciously good at business. Yeah. Am I? <laughs> Have you seen well, my apartment? I mean, you're, you're, comp- <laughs> you're, you're competing against Fred Vinci. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's that's not fair. I do have occasionally a brain. <laughs> <laughs> we got, I got, I'm putting you, putting you down for 150 and uh, Meg, I'll put you down for 70, but I'm, I'm giving this one. I'm giving this one to Tristan. We'll see uh, how that turns out. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay. Are you ready for product number two? You ready for pitch number two? Yes. Okay. All right. Imagine the Shark Tank music. (laughs) Sharks, I think we can all agree that learning German is very hard. The words are long, and there's virtually no reason to do it now that we live in the modern day times of Google Translate. Mm -hmm. But what if you don't live in those times, but instead live in times where your youthful religious ardor leads you to marry a super boring uggo who is writing a 9,000-page history of Middle Earth? And what if his hot nephew cousin wants to paint you like one of his French girls? Titanic song. (laughs) And he tells you that if you'd only learn German, you could help your awful husband achieve his pointless life goals. Well, then I guess you got to do it, but this is a bummer. But it won't be anymore once you try Rosetta Stoned. We just bought old copies of Rosetta Stone and included five high-potency vape cartridges, the kind that warn you about psychosis, right on the front. You'll be walking on the moon, and since this is a moon of the mind, there's no chance you'll bump into Elon Musk or your dumb husband. Sharks. I am going to offer for $50,000 um, a 30% stake in Rosetta Stoned. Okay. Who's taking this? Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, and I actually, I mean, this is <laughs> unlike the last one. I, I actually do think that like this, like Fred, Fred wouldn't go for this because this would have, this would have killed in the 19th century mm-hmm. because what the fuck else are you going to do? <laughs> like if you're, if you were of the, yeah. uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the Jed tree, right. Uh, you have literally nothing to do other than sit around and like, you know, jerk yourself off about how many languages <laughs> that you studied and that, you know, Cambridge or whatever. Um, this is going to kill. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that deal. All right. Somebody's getting better at business. 50K <laughs> for 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm out because I would rather have the pirated Rosetta Stone and the $100 worth of weed. I, you know, also can't argue with that choice. <laughs> also can't argue with that choice. I don't, use, <laughs> so, I don't uh, use a vape pen, so I don't know how much money that is in vape cartridges, but I would still rather have that. Speaking of pirated um, Rosetta Stone. That's what the British Museum did with the real Rosetta Stone, <laughs> right? <Hey-o. laughs> 
We're never going to stop making fun of the British for stealing no. shit from the rest of the world. No. Doing land acknowledgments to make it back. <laughs> Not until the British Museum sponsors us. <laughs> or sends all their shit back. Oh, and also the bodies. Yeah. That, that's one way of doing it. Um, then we'll stop making I don't fun of you. So that's the pressure the British Museum needs. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's their decision. Okay. Sharks, here's your last tank to swim in. Okay, okay Sharks. I know you've both lived in Chicago, Illinois. And so you know that if you want to catch a cute little critter who carries disease and really has no business living in a house, you can either use a glue trap if you're nasty, one of those that goes snap and it's RIP, or one of those humane traps that leaves you with a mouse about to launch itself out of a tiny tube right in your face. <laughs> That's true. That is how those work. It is true. Yeah. But what if you have a slightly different problem? A- another kind of unwanted infestation, if you will. Well, uh, try spouse trap today. It's a set of two <laughs> knife-like pointy items. One of them has a collapsible blade for theatrical productions and hilarious practical jokes. The other one is just an identical knife that could kill a husband. <laughs> uh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And I I'm gonna offer um I'm gonna offer uh a fifty percent for eighty k. It's a steal at twice the price. Fifty one. <laughs> I want to be the majority shareholder in a kill your husband business. Hmm. Is my husband here? No, he is not. (laughs) See, like I, uh, this is a scale question, right? Because like the, the other two products, particularly the second one, like you're, you're largely pitching to the gentry and the sort of wealthier professional classes. Whereas this, it's like the price point, I feel like it's got to be, this has more mass appeal. The price point's got to mm. be low. Like how much can you turn out? I don't, you know, I, I think I might be out of this one just because I don't, uh, I can't, I can't on the fly do the calculations to see how many units of this I would need to, to sell to um, the woman that, uh, <laughs> that, that Church's Lydgate was hot for in order to uh, actually, actually get into black. So do that one lady. I'm going with the um, sheer number of smaller units that will be yeah, on yeah. back order. You know, yeah. so they'll they'll only order twelve at a time, and then they'll have like false scarcity, and then there'll right. be all these people who need killing husband materials, <laughs> and but it'll be sold out. It's sold out everywhere, so we advertise it on Instagram, and then all the people need husband killing traps. I'm a genius. <laughs> business bi- the big time business bitch over big here time. i love i love it it's i am amazing i, love I had my identity I mean, stolen last week i'm great at business oh that's awful um it is awful yeah well so adam uh you know i mean adam smith and marks both used uh you know like with smith it was nails and with marks it's linen coats you know they're not uh, mm-hmm. but they when they're thinking about big capitalism they're they're not thinking about the luxury items for uh fred vency that's true yeah not those bespoke yeah. <laughs> special 
mass produced that those are two opposite things <laughs> i do like the scene near the end where the will is red and one of the characters is like i'm not wearing all black anymore because i'm mad and that guy's dumb <laughs> yeah that's true, <laughs> that's true. i kind of glossed over feather stone he's such a dickhead and all his family sucks so much including so Fred. much it's, it's, it's great it's and i'm great. just feeling for poor mary garth there and i'm like she's not gonna be able to they're not gonna be able to make money on their black ribbons yeah. Oh. yeah. And George Elliot is like, her face looked like a square. Her mom's face also <laughs> looked like a square, but slightly better. <laughs> she was plain, but nice looking, you know? Yeah. Fred liked her. Is that <laughs> anything? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I have to give you your results. So, um, so with the caveat that if Megan takes over any of these businesses or, you know, um, Tristan, if you, if you decide to, do a less Fred type, um, <laughs> you know, business plan. I think that I believe in both of you, but um, but you've you you've both lost all this. Yeah. Um, why would you give me this much money? That was this is on this is on you. You're not wrong. Frankly. We've done this a hundred times. One hundred yeah. games, one hundred failures. <laughs> Yep, that's yeah. I, I that's my mantra. I wrote that in my mirror in lipstick. I still need. I really do think as long as we get twelve prototype husband killing doodads and put an ad on Instagram with, we need somebody with perfect makeup to go on TikTok and be like, stabby stabby, <laughs> contour blend stab. Dead. His, him dead now. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Business. Well, thank you. I'm so glad. I feel like a motherfucking loser for the eighth time this day to this day <laughs> on this day today. Um, I'm. You did business. Hey, I at least I own the majority share, and I'm going to lose the most money. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I well, like, I did insist on like a five percent stake for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, lovely. Thank you, Katie. This has been Better Than Dead. You can find me on Twitter at Tussersaurus, Tristan at TJ Schweiger, Katie at Katie Crywo. You can find the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Better Red Pod, and email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you want to congratulate us on our 100th episode, because it's so cool. And also, as a personal matter, I already asked these two, and they were not helpful. If you think watching the 2005 Pride and Prejudice would still not be weird if you're a big fan of Succession, I'm not sure about yeah. this because I don't. Yeah. I need to know if I can do that and not feel weird about it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. If I can be like, I don't like that, Mr. Darcy. Uh, <laughs> no. Our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bontak of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review and subscribe. And remember, if you send us a picture of that, you get free stuff. Yep. Um, <laughs> we. I just want to mention a couple things just business-wise. I have a piece on Mike Davis that's coming out in the Post 45 Contemporaries cluster on Davis. Um, it was just an extraordinary honor and delight to have written that. So um, read it. It'll be out shortly and in our horrifying post row moment please donate to 
the uh, National Network of Abortion Funds or the New Jersey Abortion Access Fund or All Options Pregnancy Resource Center, which supports the Hoosier Abortion Fund, which actually is in Indiana and needs more money than Illinois right now. So that's a lot of business, but I did it anyway. Next week, we have the second episode of our two-parter on Middlemarch. And then we have James Fenimore Cooper's Last Mohicans. We <laughs> read it so you don't have to. Yep. <laughs> Last of the Mohicans. It's, gonna, it's a bad yeah. book. It's a bad movie. It's very <laughs> bad. Uh, and then after that is Richard Wright again for yep. like the fourth time, I think. But we love him. We love all of you. Thank you, comrades. Solidarity forever. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Solidarity for.